Well, welcome to uh, the first of our uh, summer series here at Emmanuel. This is something that I look forward to each year. I started doing this, I think, the very first year I was your senior pastor, where uh, between Memorial Day and Labor Day, uh, we take a topic and we kind of de- dive headlong into it. We stay in this topic all summer long. Uh, we did that with the book of Romans. We've done that with uh, Hebrews chapter 11. We did that with the book of Exodus, with uh, the story of Daniel, as well as the story of Joseph. And so uh, over the years, we've kind of just uh, kind of really focused in in our summer series in one kind of complete thought. And this week, uh, we're going to start that off. As a matter of fact, I'm kind of jumping the gun uh, this morning. I, I told you that it's uh, the birthday uh Palooza at our family this weekend. Uh, I, I don't like Christmas is real hard for me because I like to give gifts uh, before it's time for Christmas. I don't know if I got that from my dad. Uh, my dad worked swing shift for Entergy until he retired, and so there were some Christmas mornings that we were up at four o'clock in the morning uh, having Christmas before Dad had to go to work. Uh, there were others that we would wait until ten o'clock that night whenever he got home, and we'd do Christmas that evening. Uh, sometimes we did it two weeks before. So it just kind of whatever worked for the schedule that dad was working. That's kind of how we uh, worked all that out. And so uh, still, even to this day, I I can't stand to wait. I like to just give them early. If I've got it and I've already got it and I've already paid for it, then you might as well have it. And so I like to give things uh, early and and get them to them. Matter of fact, I remember uh, even vacations that Jess and I have taken where we'll leave a day early just because we can't wait to get there, right? I remember uh, we were here. This was early. This was uh, pre-kids, and so we had freedom, uh, and we had a little bit of extra money. And so we were going to go to the beach for a week. Uh, we left at midnight the night uh, before we were supposed to go. We got to uh, Florida uh, seven or eight hours before we were even able to check into our resort. Uh, and so we went to pick up, uh, she'll be embarrassed, uh, we went to pick up McDonald's for breakfast because I was a big spender. Uh, and, uh, and we changed into our beach like swimsuits and swim attire at the bathroom of McDonald's and then just went to the beach uh, for eight hours until they called us and told us that our room was ready and we could go up. We just wanted to be there, right? Uh, some of us kind of can, can relate a little bit to that. I even, uh, matter of fact, since Saturday is our anniversary, uh, I proposed a day early. I had it all planned out. I knew exactly what was going to happen. I knew how to, and I got the, the jeweler called and said, hey, your ring's ready. And I was like, sweet, let's do it tonight. And so I went and picked it up and proposed a day early because I can't wait. And so this is kind of the reason why we're doing this this morning. This was originally built in as a, as a reflection week uh, for us to go back and talk about uh, our theme for 2022, which is first. And I know you're probably thinking, Matt, we've already talked about that a lot, but I like to kind of build those in throughout the year. And so I thought, well, I'll do that on the week weekend of Memorial Day, but as the more I prayed through it, the more I thought, nope, I'm jumping right into our summer series, so we're just going to jump right into uh, the comeback, and I love this, and I think that really what we're going to talk about over the next couple months, really, is so relevant to our world and relevant to our faith journey that I think we can learn a lot from it and and really kind of pull out some daily living experiences and kind of how we can connect the dots on some of this issue. So let's start like this, okay? This is where crowd participation comes into play. If, If you are a believer, okay, if you're a Christian, if you are a Christ follower, how many of us here have lived a season of your life? It may be a long season or a very short season of your life where you were not living your faith. Okay, now we're going to pray for everybody who didn't raise their hand because they're lying in church, right? Because this is the reality that we live in, right? We will we'll go through seasons where we are on, I call it church camp uh, highs and lows, right? We, we, we come off this season where God feels like he is so real and so tangible and you can almost just touch him because you're so close to him. And then next thing you know, it may be months later, or even years later, it feels like he is so far away. And that, that maybe all the things that you held on to back then are, are almost distant memories because our, our lives and our roller coaster of our lives have had all these ups and downs. And we, uh, sometimes we're living in this like short-term disobedience, right? We can kind of look back over our life and go, well, there was just this little season where I didn't do everything I was supposed to do. Some of us can mark off decades where, where we were just in complete 
disobedience or rebellion to God. And, and I love the dynamic here because uh, in talking to a church the size of ours, I know that there are some people who, in their, in their innocence, I love you so much, in your innocence, you're like, I just didn't read the Bible as much as I should have over the last month or so. Uh, and then there's others of us who are like, no, man, I went like headlong, uh, full rebellion, got the T-shirt down the rabbit hole. I did not do anything that I was supposed to do. And we can say, well, that happened for a couple of months, and some of you are like, years, right? And we can mark that off and say, listen, we've all been there, and we've all felt this distance or maybe even this, this kind of moment of saying, listen, we've got to get back to doing what we know we're supposed to do. And here's the beauty of this. On some level, no matter what, uh, what the level or the length of your running has been, either you're here this morning or you're watching online or, or maybe you, you were brought here by a friend or something, that, that tells me that you're either at the beginning, in the middle of, or have already gone through a comeback, right? We've, we've kind of come back to what we feel like we're supposed to do. We've come back to what God's got for us. We, we realize that there's forgiveness and there's grace and there's love that's waiting for us. And, and maybe the life that we're living in the moment in our running wasn't what we thought it would be or maybe even what we wanted it to ever become. But at some point, we've, we've kind of come back to what we know is right and true and good and healthy for us. Maybe I, I remember the story of the prodigal son. Like that's one of our, we kind of go to that, was one of our favorites. I remember him, after all he did, he was, he was rehearsing his speech to give to his dad. You guys remember that story where he's going, listen, you know, dad, I know I've, I've squandered everything. You got just make me like one of your hired hands. And he had this speech all planned out, and he had rehearsed it. And maybe some of us have rehearsed our, you know, our forgiveness, our comeback speech to God a thousand times. And just like I believe happened in that parable, the dad never gave the son the opportunity to say it. Right? When he saw him coming back, he ran and met him on the road, and he threw his robe around him, and he, he threw a big party for him because he was just so excited for his comeback. And I think for some of us, we just need the moment just to pause and say, okay, God, I've rehearsed this a thousand times, but I'm just ready to get back to what I know I'm supposed to be doing. I'm ready for a little bit of a comeback. And so what we're going to do over the next couple of months is we're going to talk about how do we do this? How does that really look like in real life? And, and you know, not necessarily uh, look at all the things that we ran to, but how do we come back from what we ran to? And to do that, we're going to look at two books of the Bible that uh, kind of chronicle the Israelites' comeback to God. This is after the exile. Uh, this is the books of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And so over the next two, uh, two months, two and a half months, we're going to look at these two books and the, the incredible stories that happened throughout those books and how God uh, allowed their comeback, number one, and how the people responded to that, all the good and the bad things that happened along the way. But first, before we get to that, because I can already hear you turning, thinking, oh, well, he's going to go to Ezra because he said that first. We're not starting there this morning. We've got to set up our need for the comeback. That's the reason why I wanted to start this morning with this, because next week I want to just dive right into it. Uh, but, so this week we've got to talk about why do we need to come back? What has is, what is drawn us away? You know, we, we understand that maybe we got into exile, maybe we got away from God. Uh, but but what does is, what is we have to deal with on, on that understanding of that? How do we recognize how do we get away from God? And so we've got to deal with our sin. We've got to deal with our disobedience. And we've got to kind of get past the curtain of good intentions. And so to do that, let's go to 2 Kings chapter 17. Okay, 2 Kings chapter 17 is where we're, our, our passage is going to be. We're going to look really at almost this whole chapter this morning. But before uh, we dive off into it, while you're looking, go ahead and look. Um, I'm going to give you a, uh, I say a 30-second history lesson, but it's probably going to be more like a two-minute history lesson, okay? We've got to figure out where we are in the story of Scripture, in the story of the Bible, to understand what's actually happening in this moment. So if we go all the way back, remember that God makes a covenant with a guy named Abraham, right? His name was actually Abram, and God changes it to Abraham. And he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. This is an incredible promise that God makes to Abraham. A few generations later, we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, uh, his name eventually gets changed to Israel. That's the reason why we call them the Israelites. Jacob's name was changed to that. And Jacob has 12 boys. 
These are the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Uh, 11 of the 12 brothers all hate that 12th one, and they decide they're going to kill him. But instead of doing that, they said, let's make some money and let's just sell him. And through a series of events, our guy Joseph is sold into service that ends up in Egypt. Now, when he ends up in Egypt, there's a crazy set of circumstances that happen to that, but he's there, and there's a world famine. Joseph is the man who saves his entire family, really the entire nation, uh, from starving to death. And so eventually, when all that story plays out, the entire family join him in Egypt, and then 400 years later, that family of 70 has multiplied to almost a million. And these million people are now enslaved by the Egyptians, and they're about to be led out by none other than Moses, right? Moses comes along, uh, has the burning bush moment, let my people go. And Moses leads these people out, carrying, uh, weighted down with treasures from the Egyptians. God allowed the Egyptians to load them down as they left. And they leave Egypt. Uh, you guys know that Moses gets the law on Mount Sinai, but apparently it took a little bit too long. Y'all remember that part of the story? He was up there for longer than the Israelites wanted him to be. And so what did they do? They built a golden calf. Moses comes down from the mountain, sees the calf, gets angry, cracks the tablets. We all see, uh, you know, Charlton Heston do that uh, on TV. And so he goes back up. They destroy the calf. He goes back up, gets a second copy, uh, and comes down with the law. And Moses leads them to the land that God is going to give them. He, they've, they've crossed the Red Sea. They've had the manna. They've had all this incredible stuff. And God, Moses leads them to the land that God's going to give them, but they're too afraid to enter. And so because of that, they wander in the desert for 40 years. 40 years later, they finally come back. They take what God has said is theirs to begin with. And uh, the people settle finally after years of conquest. They finally settle down and judges rule, okay? So the judges are established throughout uh, the hierarchy of individuals and say, listen, you can bring your complaints to us. We'll handle it. But the people say, we don't want judges. We want kings. Everybody else has a king. We want a king too. So finally, King Saul comes along. He doesn't last very long. King David, everybody knows David. We love David. David's here. Uh, David's son, Solomon. And then after Solomon, something incredible happens. And that's where the nation of Israel splits. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Northern kingdom of Israel, its capital city is Samaria. Southern kingdom of Judah, its capital city, Jerusalem. Okay, so now we have the north and the south. The issue is that the people in the north, the kings of the north, said we don't want people going to the southern kingdom. What if they stay there? Because the temple's in Jerusalem. What we'll do is we'll set up some worship sites in the northern kingdom. One at the northern part in a city called Dan. One at the southern part in a city called Bethel. And what did they place there? Nothing other than golden calves. They didn't learn their lesson very well. If you know your history of the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom never had a king that was, that was uh, evaluated as a good king that did everything right. The southern kingdom only had a few. The northern kingdom never had one. And that's where it leads us in 2 Kings chapter 17. We have the split. We have a northern kingdom of Israel who is being very disobedient to what God wants. And God is about to bring the Assyrians. And he's going to push his people into exile. This is something. And we read this and we go, well, why didn't they see this coming? Listen, we go all the way back. Moses saw this coming. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 28. The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your fathers. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and gods of stone. Verse 64, then the Lord will scatter you among the nations from one end of the earth to the other. Moses is telling them, listen, if you guys don't do this right, God's going to scatter you. And what we see happening uh, years later, is this exact event unfold. So we have this group of people who know better, who know who God is, who have seen him work in incredible ways, who have distanced themselves from him, and who are about to experience exile in a way that they never thought would happen. 2 Kings chapter 17, let's start with verse 1 and verse 2. This gives us context, okay? In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, 
Hosea, son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria. Samaria was their capital city, remember? He reigned there nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. So there's our context. Almost every time in the Old Testament when you read, they're going to tell you who the king in the north was when a king in the south was appointed, or vice versa, who the king in the south was when a new king in the north was appointed. They're trying to give you some timeline context. Verse 3. Salmanassar, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hosea, who had been Salmanassar's vassal, and who had paid tribute to him. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hosea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to sow the king of Egypt, and he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, Salmanassar seized him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land and marched against Samaria and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala and Gozan on the Habar River in the town of the Medes. Now you read this and you go, okay, there's a lot of names that's hard to pronounce in that. Salmanazar. Who looks at their baby and names him Salmanazar, right? And so you see all this stuff unfold, but it seems almost very cut and dry, right? Salmanazar comes in. Hosea was a vassal king. We don't have time to get into what that means, but it just basically means, listen, I'll pay you if you don't invade us. <laughs> I'll give you money every year if we can just keep the peace. But Hosea had said, no, I'm not going to pay him anymore. I'm going to pay the king of Egypt. He's bigger. He's, surely he'll take better care of us. And so Salmanazar had enough. He said, I'm coming, I'm coming for you, and I'm coming for your land. And so he comes in, and it says that he deports the Israelites out of Samaria all throughout Assyria. Almost seems boring to read. But this is a very, very big deal. This is the land that God promised the Israelites they could have. This is the land that God helped drive out the people who were living in so that the Israelites could have. And, and this is the land that God gave them almost 700 years earlier. For 700 years they'd lived there. They'd, they'd grown up there. Generations had come from them. And now, at this moment, the kingdom of Israel is no more. It's completely gone. And, and, then, and give you some context. This is kind of strange. The official kingdom of Israel would not be reinstated for another 2,670 years. This exile is a big deal. That happened in 1948. Hello, the United Nations declared Israel a nation again. They were not, even though, listen, I know the Maccabees story and all that kind of stuff happened, but that, that was very short-lived. A nation of Israel recognized globally as a nation 2,600 years after Assyria comes in and takes them. 2,000 years later. Finally, they come back. This is a very, very big, historic, monumental deal. And the question we have to ask ourselves is why? Why did God allow his people to be taken captive? Why did God allow his people to suffer? Why did God do this? And I can answer that question as most simply as I can God didn't do it. They did. They allowed it. This is the same reasons that you and I find ourselves far from God. God, God didn't make us rebel. He didn't make us make bad decisions. He didn't make us leave or abandon him. We abandoned him. We made that decision on our own. And please hear me. The next few verses are going to be very hard for us to read, but we should feel them deep in our bones and let it be a, a warning call that kind of wakes us up and shakes us out of that little fog and that little, that little disobedience that kind of lives in our heart and, and give us the warning that they are meant to be. Look at verse 7. It says this. All this took place because 
You can almost feel the music change. If you're reading through the story in 2 Kings, and when you understand the Assyrian army came in, and they took them captive, and they pushed them out. That's what the Assyrians did. They're brilliant. Brilliant in their, in their war tactics. They would come into a place that wasn't their own. They'd round up all the people that didn't die fighting, and they'd ship them off. They'd make them leave. And they'd bring their own people in, and they would... My, iPad's talking to me. They bring their own people in and they would let them settle. They'd take over the houses and the lands and the farms. They would move into all the really nice places and leave all the really bad places alone. They, they allowed them to leave so that they could come in and take over. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the king of Israel had introduced. All this happened because they sinned against the Lord. They sinned. That word sin means to miss, to miss the way, to go wrong, to incur guilt. God doesn't do that. We do that. God doesn't change. Psalms 18.30 says this God, his way is perfect. Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting of shadows. Right? God doesn't change. We change. We are the ones that distance ourselves from him. He doesn't distance himself from us. If there's somebody that's moved in that relationship, church, it's us. If there's relational closeness with Jesus has changed, if your proximity to Jesus has changed, if your intimacy with Jesus has changed, there's only one of us who's moved, and it's not him. There's only one of us who's changed, and it's not him. There's only one of us who's distanced ourselves from the other, and it's not him. If you are feeling far from God, it's because we have sinned against the Lord, our God. It's very clear. All this took place because the Israelites sinned against the Lord. That distance that we feel... That, that, well, I don't feel like God's as close as you. That's because there's probably sin in your life. And we don't like to look inwardly. We like to point fingers outwardly. Well, it's not any worse than what so-and-so and so-and-so has been doing. I'm not doing anything anybody else hasn't done. But regardless of all that, sin is still there. And it causes that distance, that feeling of being separated. We've got to get off the idea that that sin that causes distance has to be major sin. Because nine times out of ten, it's not. Most of the time, it's minor sin. It's those feelings of apathy or those feelings of, I just don't feel like it, or I don't, God's calling me something, I'm just not going to do it. Those little things that build into big things. And by the way, God doesn't see sin like that. He just sees it as sin. It's not big sin or little sin for him. It's just there. And any sin causes separation. Any sin causes distance. Most people say that the prophet Jeremiah wrote First and Second Kings. And what he does in this moment is so brilliant. He, he contrasts Israel's sin with God's faithfulness. Do you see what he said? He said, they sinned against the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt. He's reminding them. Right? We, we should read that and think, how in the world could they do that? Right? This is 400 years of enslavement. This is walking out, loaded down with treasures and silver and gold. This is walking through the parted Red Sea, eating the manna from heaven, taking the land that they should not have been able to take. And his faithfulness had been shown to them over and over and over again. How could they? Right? In the same breath, church, how could we? How could we? All of us have had some sort of Red Sea moment in our life. Maybe we didn't walk through, you know, Lake Monticello on dry ground. Maybe we didn't, maybe, maybe it was something a little bit more personal and like, I can't believe God just worked this out. I can't believe God just made this happen. I can't believe God just did this for me. We've all seen him 
be faithful. We've seen this provision over and over and blessing over and over and we see God move and we see him we witness his goodness and we get to see him work in our lives and experience forgiveness and healing and restoration and watch do God do things that only God can do how then could we ever turn our backs on him but we do how then could we ever allow anything to creep into relationship to cause distance but we do How? He tells us, following the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them. Does your life reflect more of culture or of Christ? Does your life reflect more of culture or of Christ? Are you more concerned about being accepted by people or being accepted by Him? Are you bending on the ever-changing ideals of the world? Or are you standing firm in what Scripture says? Listen, when there's no difference between the life of a believer and the life of a non-believer, we are following the practices of the nations. We are bending to the will of culture. If there's no difference in the way I live my life than somebody who doesn't know who Jesus is lives their life, then there's, we got a problem. The world is supposed to see us and see Jesus. Unfortunately, most of the time they just see us and see hypocrisy. They see what we say and how we live are two different things. But we see we can do this. We can stand up on the big issues, right? We can stand up and say, all life is precious to God. This is the conversation that's happening culturally in our world right now. So we stand up and we say that abortion is wrong. We stand up and we say that euthanasia is wrong. We stand up and say that any kind of you know, regime that comes in and tries to produce some sort of mass genocide is wrong because all life is precious to God. All life is precious extends even beyond uh, the womb to the hospital bed. It goes all the way into ethnic and racial diversity, right? God loves white people as much as he loves black people, as much as he loves Asian people and Hispanic people and indigenous people and aboriginal people. God loves us all because all life is precious to God. It extends even beyond that into orphans and widows. As a matter of fact, if you read the Bible, the Bible says real faith is expressed by those people who take care of orphans and widows. And so we say all life is precious and even goes even beyond that, talking about the protection of individuals from physical, mental, emotional, or sexual abuse. It's easy to stand up on those big things because we know those are the big things. We can stand up and say, this is what God says about these issues. We stand firm on what God says about those issues. But church, how dare we play the game of the big issues and ignore the heart issues in our own lives? Where where we're carrying around bitterness and jealousy. Where we're struggling with lust and pornography. Where we're consistently sacrificing our weakness on the altar of popularity. We're ignoring broken relationships because of the resentment and unforgiveness. And we're, we're parenting based off of convenience instead of conviction. And we're pursuing relationships based off of momentary pleasure instead of a lasting commitment. We choose to give priority to things that are fleeting, things that won't last instead of seeing a bigger picture in a life of legacy. Church, if we don't look any different on those issues than lost people do, then there's a big problem. There's a problem that's going to cause division in relationship. There's going to cause distance in relationship. Listen, I don't take the last part of verse 8 that's on the screen very lightly and, and hear me through this. It says, they followed the practices of the nations the Lord drove out before them as well as the practices of the kings of Israel had introduced. The kings. These are the people who were supposed to be looking out for them. The people who were supposed to be standing up for what was best for them. They were the ones in leadership positions. And I know that there, in Scripture there are major differences between kings and prophets and priests. Okay? And I am no king. And I am no prophet. And I am, I'm really not a priest either. Okay? But I read that verse and it I believe it's my responsibility as a pastor, as your pastor, to make sure that we as a church follow what God's word says, not what we wish God's word said. 
There's a big difference between that. Can you imagine the people of Israel where they're kings, the people who are supposed to be looking out for them and making sure they're doing all the right things, they are introducing things to them. Pagan worship. If you read through Kings, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you'll see there were kings who were offering their children to Molech. They were sacrificing their kids to a foreign pagan god. Kings who were supposed to be over them and watching out for them and taking care of them. They not only participated, but they encouraged this behavior, this, this synchronism. This is God plus other things. We're kind of covering our bases. I don't just believe in God of Israel. I'm also believing in all these other gods as well. And these kings were in, in responsibility and positions over them of authority. And they were leading them to this. They were encouraging this and unfortunately, church, I'm just going to be real honest, there's a lot of pastors who are introducing things to their churches that are not scripture things. And I, I take this very, very seriously. I, I have a responsibility to my family first, and then I have a responsibility to you as a church. Now, I'm supposed to lead my family well. I'm supposed to lead this church well. And I, I can promise you that as long as I'm your pastor, I will not bend the word of God to fit a personal or cultural agenda. We have to stand on what it says. It's the only authority that we have. My opinion doesn't matter. My opinion has to reflect what Scripture says. That's the only thing that matters. I'm going to read this first half of this next verse, verse 9, and we're going to stop and talk about it because it has to be talked about. It's hard, but it has to be said. 2 Kings 17, verse 9, The Israelites did secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. Our sin doesn't have to be public for it to distance us from God. They secretly did things. Y'all know those secret things? Those things that nobody knows about except for you. Those things that you know that you've been really good at hiding from people. Those secret things God knows. Those secret things, I believe, cause us more pain and more guilt and more distance between us and God because they're heart things. They may not be out in the open things. You may, you may not be out doing all the horrible, rotten things that everybody kind of associates with the big sins, right? But they're secret things. And they're eaten away at you. They're heart things. Proverbs 27, 19 says, As water reflects the face, so man's heart reflects the man. Those heart things begin to define you. Jesus himself tells us in Luke chapter 8, For there's nothing hidden that will not be disclosed. Nothing that's concealed will not be known or brought out into the open. He knows our hearts. He knows that sin struggle. And hear me, this is not being said to shame anybody or condemn anybody. That's not what Jesus does. It's not what I'm doing. What I'm saying is there's freedom in confession. There's forgiveness in that vulnerability. We've got to stop playing like we've got it all together and stop struggling in secret and just confess it and say, okay, God, you know what I've been doing. This is what's going on. This is where I'm really, this is the, probably the root of why I feel so distanced from you. Israel was in a bad place, a place that is not too unfamiliar to a lot of us. They were exiled. They had a history of, of not surrendering to what God has for them. They have a history of, of being pulled away by their own decisions, by their own actions, by their own worship. Let's keep reading that whole verse in context. Verse 9, the Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, You shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance to the entire law that I have commanded your fathers to obey, and that I have delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. These 
high places and the Shura poles. These are all worship to a little g God, right? These are all pagan worship sites. The Bible says they worshiped idols, even though God said, don't do this. We've talked about this a thousand times, and we always initially pull back from statements about pagan worship because we think, oh, I would never, I'd never do that. that. That's the Old Testament thing. We would never worship a false idol. But I'm going to say it and I'm going to leave it. Anything that you place as more important than God is an idol. Anything that you place as more important than God is an idol. Anything that you serve, anything that you prioritize, anything that you rearrange your schedules for while at the same time sacrificing what you know to be true about who God is and what he wants from your life. Any of that is worship to a pagan idol. I'm not saying you can't do things. I'm not saying you can't go on vacations or you can't play baseball or you can't miss church. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that if your focus and the focus of your life is more about those things than it is about those God things, then you've replaced your worship and it's become an idol. Listen, my, my boys love football. I love that they love football. But I'm not raising my boys to be good football players. I'm raising my boys to be good men. That's the focus of our home. If football is a part of that equation, great. I will celebrate that. But it's not the equation. The equation is this. Whatever it is, and I'm not picking on football, it can be anything. It can be our pursuit of our own happiness, right? This is what's preached in a lot of churches. God just wants you to be happy. That's not in Scripture, And when our whole life is focused around our own pursuit of our own happiness, then that pursuit has become an idol that we are worshiping. Jesus never says, I just want you to be happy. You know what he says? Take up your cross daily and follow me. Die to everything that you think that you want and follow me. And I'll give you everything that you never even dreamed about. That's what Scripture teaches. Over and over and over again, God's calling us to turn from our ways. That's verse 13. Turn from our ways. We've got to get this figured out now. We've, we've got to, we can't continue to live in this disobedience. We've got to come back, right? We understand that we are the ones who brought it on ourselves. We understand that we are the one that placed the distance between us and God. And we've got to have a comeback to repentance, a comeback to obedience, a comeback to right relationships. Look at verse 14. Starts with a word that we hate, but. (laughs) But. It's like, I want to come back. I recognize I need this comeback. I know I should have this comeback, but they would not listen. And they were stiff necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do, and they did things the Lord had forbidden them to do. I've been there, done that, right? We know we need this comeback, but we're stiff-necked people. Ever been there? Like you're just going to dig your heels in, you know you're wrong, but you're going you're gonna to dig your heels in and, and be obstinate. And, and I'm not changing. This is who I am. This is how I'm wired. I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what anybody else thinks. This is what I'm going to do. We say things like, it's not hurting anybody. I've got this under control. I'm fine. Don't worry about me. I'm going to leave That verse, I think it's verse 14 that's up there. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. You see that right in the middle of the screen? Read that again. Now read it again. You become what you follow after. I wonder how many of us are becoming what we're following and we don't like what we're becoming. If we were to keep reading, we don't have time 
to get into all of it. Gosh, I want you to read this, uh, read this this week because it's so, so good. Verse 16 and 17 talks about the golden calves in Bethel and Dan. Remember I told you about those and about how that provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 18 through 20 talks about how the tribe of Judah, which was the southern kingdom, was left. Uh, but the Lord thrust the northern kingdom from his presence, right? He thrust them from his presence. It's an incredible verbiage through that. Verse 21 through 23 talks about the kings, how they had warnings from the prophets and how the people refused to listen to them. And then verse 23 ends with this. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, and they are still there. What Jeremiah's doing here is he's, he's wrapping up this entire thought, saying they had people who should have been looking out for them that weren't. They, they worshiped these idols in, in their, in their quote-unquote temples. They were thrust from God's presence and they are in exile and they are still there. Let me give you one last thought. and I promise if you read the rest of that, it's all really, really good. The rest of this chapter talks about uh, social and political tactics of, of the Syrians. It talks about the deportation of the Jews. Uh, it talks about how lions come back and eat some of the bad guys. It's really incredible. You should read your Old Testament. Uh, as a matter of fact, at some point, Salmanassar, remember the king of Syria, Salmanassar, since uh, after the lions eat some people, he's like, this is, we don't understand the God of this land. And so go get one of the priests that we deported on, in the exile. Go get, find one of their priests and bring them back so that he can teach us, the people, the new people of the land, what this God requires. It's pretty incredible. And so they come and get a priest, and they bring him back, and they say, listen, you got to teach us about your God, because uh, we don't want to get eaten anymore. It's kind of a scary place to be. But even a priest with the best of intentions can't turn the tide of an entire nation who don't really know anything about God. And really, they're playing at that because they just wanted to not get eaten. Okay, They, they were still going to worship their gods. They were still going to do all the other things, but they just didn't want to upset the God of the land. This chapter ends with a really chilling statement. And for us, I think in our season of rebellion, it should really shake us. We think about the things that have drawn us away from God. We think about the life that we live that's separate from what he, we know he's supposed to be. we're supposed to be living in him. We, we understand that there's this, there's this perfect will of God where, where this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing and I'm doing exactly what he wants from me. And then there's this permissible will of God where he allows me to make decisions even if they're not within his perfect will. And we're living in this permissible will maybe way off. And we think, well... What if I just stay here? What if I don't ever just come back? I've got salvation. Salvation is secure. I understand that. The Bible talks about that. Once we are his, we're always his. Nothing can pluck you from his hand. No height and the depth or angel, demon. We got all that. What if I just stay in rebellion? What if I just stay doing what I want to do, living the life that I want to live, and we can kind of fall back on this relationship with God? 2 Kings verse 17, verse 41. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols, talking about when the priests came back. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their fathers did. Even while they were worshiping the Lord, they were serving idols. They were, they were playing the game. They were trying to have both, right? They were playing at relationship with God while living in sin. We'll act the part, but we'll do what we want. We'll get our feel good at church. We'll get our brownie points with Jesus. And then we'll go fill our sin bucket with whatever we want to do throughout the week. We'll just play both hands at the same time. And you know what? I, I kind of came to a realization as I was writing all this stuff out. If that's what you want to do, there's nothing I, as your pastor, can do to stop you. I can't, I, listen, there's nothing as we as a church can collectively do to stop you. We can't, I don't have any authority over your life. I, I can't walk in and boss you around. I can, I can continue to draw you to truth. I can continue to point out things that God's, you know, trying to teach you or whatever. I can do that, but I can't make you live one way or the other. There's nothing that I can do over that. But hear this, generations will follow you. 
It says their children and their grandchildren continue to do as their fathers did. Your children and your grandchildren will follow your example. I was your student pastor in this church for 10 years. And I sat in countless deacons meetings. Over those 10 years, we have a deacons meeting about every month. So 120 deacons meetings and who are who men who love this church and who want what's best for almost every ministry in this church. They really want to serve the church. They want what's best in student ministry. Even, even I, when I was a younger, younger kid, <laughs> I, I didn't even know their heart and their story. I, I've come to know that they grew up in this church, that they, they learned some fundamental things while they were in student ministry that allows them to serve in the position that they're in right now. They loved it, and they would look at me with, with, with want to. What can we do to help? Why are you running 100 kids on Wednesday night, and there's seven or eight of them here on Sunday morning? What can we do to help get them here on Sunday morning? Why are they not coming? You know, my answer every time was, they're not coming because their parents aren't coming. There's nobody setting the example for them at home. We've got church members who are good church members who don't get up and come. And their teenagers aren't going to be like, okay, mom and dad, I'm getting up out of bed early on a Sunday morning and I'm going to set the example for my family. They're not going to do it because they're watching the example of their parents and their grandparents. Why are the kids not coming? Because their parents aren't coming. How long, how long are we willing to live in exile? Maybe, maybe allowing our pride to keep us from right relationship with God. How long will we choose to live in disobedience knowing that our generations will follow us. You, I put it on the screen, you are leaving a legacy for your children and your grandchildren. The question is, is your legacy worth following? Are the examples that you're setting right now, the life that you want your kids to live and your grandkids to live, I believe for most of us, whether we're at the beginning part or the end part or the middle part, we recognize we need to come back. We recognize it's time for us to get back to what we know is right and true. And through our own sin, through our own disobedience, through our own rebellion, we recognize that we're the ones that have caused the distance in relationship. The great thing about all this is just like with the prodigal son, when he returned, the father didn't, didn't care about his speech. He wasn't concerned about what he had to say. He was just glad he came back. And that's the, that's the beauty of God working in our life is that he doesn't need a speech. He doesn't need this rehearsed whatever. He doesn't need a perfect person to come back. He just needs you to come back. He just needs your return. He needs you to recognize that, listen, you know what? I may be living far off, but it's time for me to go home. It's time for me to give this up and stop being uh, selfish in my own wants and desires. It's time for me to start living for what he has for me. I can't play at this any longer because I've got generations that are following me. I've got my kids. I've got my grandkids that are going to follow my example. I told you guys this before. I don't care what. <laughs> I don't care what's on my headstone. When I die, I don't care what <laughs> care what anybody puts on it. I'll be really, really disappointed if all it said was he was a good preacher. Some of y'all be really surprised if it said he was a really good preacher. Because <laughs> that's not the legacy I'm leaving. I want to say he was a good husband. I want to say he was a good father. I want to say that he loved Jesus. And people knew that. That's the legacy that I want to leave. Not, man, he was selfish. He did what he wanted to do. He had a lot of fun. Played the game at church. Came every once in a while. Gave when he could. Served where he wanted to. 
That's not what that's not what I want my kids to follow in. That's not what I want my grandkids to follow in. Question is, what kind of legacy are you leaving? It's time, I believe. For what a, what a great story would it be for you to be able to sit down with with future generations? Goes, let me tell you about the mistakes that I made, but let me tell you how God changed everything. Let me tell you about the comeback that I've experienced. Took Israel a long time to figure that out. I hope it doesn't take us that long. Would you stand with me? TJ's going to come. Miss Ruth's going to play. We're going to have a moment of invitation. Maybe just for the first time, you just need a second and you need to come back. For the first time, maybe you said, I, I've done this game back and forth a hundred times, but I, I, now I need to really do it. Maybe this is the launching point for you. This, from this point forward, we're going to read in Ezra and Nehemiah all these incredible stories of how they came back and what they did and how that bonded them together in ways that they never even imagined. First step is realizing that we need to come back, that we need right relationship, that we need God to do something in our life. And just like that prodigal son, we've got to come back. We've got to make the trip. We've got to speak his name. And we've got to rest in the forgiveness that he offers. Let's, let's pray. Father, I pray that if there's somebody here this morning that feels far from you, God, assure them that you're not far from them, that you are simply a word away. TJ and Kenley sing about speaking the name of Jesus. And God, when we are in our own exile, it feels like you may be a thousand miles away, but all we have to do is speak your name. And you are right here, willing to forgive, willing to reconcile, willing to walk alongside of us as we figure out the relationships and the the things that maybe we've left in our wake of disobedience. God, I just pray that this morning, maybe for the first time, we can experience that comeback, that we can begin the process of, of aligning our lives to be back with what you want, not what we want. God, help us to realize that we're the ones who do it, that we're the ones who have caused the distance that through our own sin and our own rebellion, that God, we have pushed ourselves away from right relationship but Father you are the one that brings us back you are the one that offers forgiveness you are the one that gives us a fresh slate and a second and third and fourth and fifth chance God thank you for your love thank you for the opportunity that we have to come back to you Father if there's somebody here this morning that doesn't ever even experience maybe that moment of salvation where they've ever felt like they've ever once come back. God, I pray that maybe today they'd make that decision. God, they'd run to the Father. Father, if there's somebody here that needs that, talk about church membership or baptism or God, this is your open-ended invitation to speak to us and for us to respond to you. Whatever it is, God, let's be obedient in this moment. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys come as TJ sings. <laughs>